Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to thomisticinstitute.org slash Rome. That's thomisticinstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So uh, our, our second speaker is uh, Father Ambrose Little, um, originally from Connecticut. He entered the Dominican Order in 2007 and was ordained a priest in 2013. Um, before joining the Dominicans, he graduated across the street, the Catholic University of America, with a bachelor's in philosophy. Uh, afterwards, went on for a licentiate in philosophy at the Catholic University of America. Um, and, and taught for two years at Providence College. Um, and uh, he, then he went on to earn his PhD uh, in philosophy at the University of Virginia, where he wrote on Aristotelian change in the Scala Natura, looking uh, into aspects of, Aquinas, or of, of Aristotle's uh, philosophy of nature and philosophy of biology. Um, he joined the pontifical faculty of Mac Conception here at the Vatican House of Studies uh, in the summer of 2021. Um, and uh, where, uh, where he teaches philosophy uh, and is, was appointed the assistant director of the Thomistic Institute in 2022. Uh, and so we're very happy to have him here to speak to us on demonstration and certainty in Thomistic philosophy of nature. So please join me in welcoming Father Ambrose. Well, thank you. I'm going to be following up Dr. Carl's wonderful lecture here with something a little bit more specific looking at demonstration in particular, and to see how philosophical notions of demonstration were received into the world of what we think of as modern science. Now, one thing I want to emphasize before we get into the weeds is that this talk will be pointing out how the structures of deduction as used in science today do not usually give us the level of certitude that we might have expected especially given what Dr. Carl has been talking about respecting the high level of certitude that traditional forms of scientific deduction are supposed to give us. I mention this not to demean our scientific dis discoveries, not at all, but just to kind of recognize what we want to recognize are the limitations of the so-called hypothetical deductive method that is used in science. We'll talk a little bit about what that method is in a bit. These limitations are, by the way, recognized by many working scientists today, especially those who accept Thomas Kuhn's notion of paradigm shifts and scientific revolutions with respect to models. And at the end of this talk, I will gesture, but only gesture, at ways in we can improve upon scientific reasoning and science by using a more Thomistic and Aristotelian framework to begin with. Now, so to begin, let's just kind of, I'm going to look again a little bit at what Aristotle and Aristotelians think of science and what it is. So 
As, as uh, Dr. Carl mentioned, science philosophically is an ordered body of knowledge about things which are necessary or about things which cannot be otherwise. We obtain this knowledge by strict deduction from first principles that also cannot be otherwise so that we may obtain knowledge of things that cannot be otherwise. Aristotle's deductive logic gives us a way, therefore, to arrive at conclusions that we can be certain about, as long as we are certain about the things that we start with or our first principles. Now, his logic has a bunch of different rules for helping us to have the right sorts of starting places, right? So he has rules for how we understand the terms or the things that enter into an argument. And the goal of these rules about terms is to make sure that all of the, thing, all of the words that we use, all of the things that we are considering are clear, and that everybody who looks at the argument understands what is meant by the term. So that's one of the things that he, he gives us rules about. He also gives us rules for what makes a good proposition which is just a fancy logic word for a sentence that makes a claim about the real world. So his rules for propositions help us to understand whether or not a certain proposition is true or false. So that's an interesting distinction that is helpful to understand in logic, is that terms are either clear or unclear, propositions or sentences that make claims about the world are either true or false. And lastly, Aristotle has rules for how we arrange our propositions or sentences into arguments, the most famous of which are called syllogisms. The goal for making a syllogism is that we, have, is that we create something, an argument that is valid. And what makes a syllogism valid is that when the premises of the syllogism are true, then the conclusion is necessarily true. So note, like, let me reiterate, when the premises of a valid syllogism are true, then the conclusion is necessarily true and cannot be false. So when all the terms are clear, all the propositions are true, and when the syllogism is valid, then the conclusion of the argument must be true and cannot be false. So that's a pretty powerful tool, right? And it's pretty awesome when you can get it. The problem is, right, uh, that it's hard to get this. It's really hard to piece together all of these the different individual moving parts such that you can be absolutely certain about the conclusion. And so to reason in this way takes an awful long time and can, in fact, take centuries. And by the way, this is why it also can be very hard to read texts like that of St. Thomas Aquinas or of Aristotle, because oftentimes they get very in, into the details and the weeds of an argument and spend pages upon pages just talking about the meaning of terms before they even enter into arguments. Now, I could go on, but this is not a logic class, so I will spare you the details there. But one thing I will do is outline some basic argument forms in logic and I'm going to avoid talking about syllogisms, as neat as they are, and just focus on types of hypothetical arguments because I think that's the easiest entry point into uh, the conclusions and discussion, uh, points I want to make in today's lecture. 
And so if you look at your handout, the first page has a bunch of these hypothetical, um, these hypothetical arguments, and the back has some quotes that I will say. So the, fir the first two are logical uh, hypothetical arguments, and we, we're going to look at these are, the first two are valid ones, okay? And so we call the first type of hypothetical argument there modus ponens, and it goes like this. One, if x, then y, x and y being variables here. That's the first proposition. Second proposition, x. Third proposition, y. Very simple, very straightforward, right? You know, if the first is true, that is this conditional if x, then y, and the second is true, that x, is, x exists, then y necessarily has to be the case. The second type of hypothetical argument we're going to look at is called modus tollens. And it goes like this. If x, then y, not y, therefore not x. Again, this is fairly easy to understand. Modus tollens, by the way, is especially important in science because it is the basis of you know, the falsification theories that a lot of scientists try to use in their arguments. But more about that in a few moments. So now I want to highlight that uh, a type of hypothetical argument that is similar, that is extremely popular, but is not valid, is invalid, as we say. But I want to also make a clear distinction here. By invalid, I don't mean false, I don't mean bad, I don't even mean evil. <laughs> I, all I mean is that it's possible that the premises can be true and the conclusion could be false. It may be the case that all that the premises and the conclusion are all true. But the way the argument is structured, right, allows for the premises to be true and the conclusion to be false, right? So it takes away from our level of certitude about, what, about the truth of the conclusion. So in invalid arguments, the conclusion is not necessarily true. Now, sometimes these arguments are really bad, but not always. So let's look at some of the more popular ways of developing an invalid argument. The first of these, right, is, the, is number three on your handout, which I labeled there denying the antecedent. So it begins as the other ones have begun. If X, then Y. Not X. Therefore, not Y. It's called denying the antecedent, right, because the if part of, of the conditional, the first sentence there, uh, is the antecedent, the then part is the, is the consequent. Now, what's the problem with this one? Well, let's, let's replace the variables with things that we understand in everyday life, okay? So let's say that we start with this sentence. If it is raining, then the uncovered sidewalk is wet. That seems like it's true. Now, here's another fact we want to look at. It is not raining. Therefore, the uncovered sidewalk is not wet. Now here's the thing. While it may be the fact, may be the case that de facto the sidewalk is not wet and it is not raining, nevertheless it is possible for the sidewalk to be wet 
when it is not raining. So for instance, we might say, maybe somebody turned on a sprinkler. That's why the sidewalk was wet. Maybe somebody was walking their dog and the dog decided to mark the spot on the, on the sidewalk. Then it would be wet. Maybe a pipe has burst and is spraying water everywhere. Those are all reasons why the sidewalk may be wet, but, it, but it's, wet, it's wet despite the fact that it's not raining. And so therefore we can't be sure about the conclusion in this argument. So there's another uh, fallacious argument that this is a fourth one on your handout that we call affirming the consequent. And it goes like this, if X, then Y, Y, therefore X. So this has a similar problem to the previous fallacy, right? Consider the sidewalk again. If it is raining, then the uncovered sidewalk is wet. The uncovered sidewalk is wet, therefore it is raining. Like with the other fallacy, right, there are many reasons why the uncovered sidewalk might be wet. That goes against, uh, that, that, that goes against the conclusion, right? Maybe the uncovered sidewalk is wet, again, because of the dog or the sprinkler or the burst pipe. Um, that we can't know for certain just because the sidewalk is wet, therefore it's raining. So now, remember that the goal of Aristotelian logic is to give us a conclusion that cannot be otherwise. But if we can find even one reason why the conclusion is false when the premises are true, then the logic of the argument has failed. And we have what we call an invalid argument. And again, I want to emphasize invalid, despite the way we use it in common uh, parlance, invalid does not mean false. All it means is you can't guarantee that the conclusion is true when the premises are true. Okay. So the point of all that uh, was to say that there are ways in which we can structure arguments that we can be absolutely certain about our conclusions when we know the premises are true. And then there are ways in which we are not absolutely certain about conclusions that we have. And it's important to recognize that just because we are not absolutely certain about the things that we, that we consider or think we know doesn't mean that like, they're bad or that they're unreasonable, right? There are many things that we hold to that we don't know for certain, right? So, in, and so consider this, right? St. Thomas famously remarks that, right, the difficulty of coming to certain, absolute certitude about certain conclusions is the reason why, for instance, God reveals himself to us in Scripture. Because not everything that God says, reveals about himself in Scripture is unknowable by human reason. Some of these things are knowable by human reason. For instance, we can know through argument that God exists. But God also reveals the fact that he exists to others, and certain other features that we might be able to know by reason alone, um, because only a, a, a few people over a long period of time and with a bit of error would be able to come to it. And so here's what St. Thomas says, right? Even as regards those truths, truths about God, which human reason could have discovered, it was necessary that man should be taught by a divine revelation, because the truth about God, such as reason could have discovered, would only be known by a few and after a long time and with an admixture of many errors. Whereas man's whole salvation, which is in God, depends upon the knowledge of this truth. 
Therefore, in order that the salvation of men might be brought about more fitly and more surely, it was necessary that they should be taught by divine truths, by divine revelation, end quote. So what St. Thomas means is that divine revelation gives us information about things that we could never know on our own, but some things that we could have known on our own, but that would be really hard to get. But because they're so important for everybody to know, God makes it easier for people to have access to this information, even if not everybody is going to have scientific certitude about that information. So again, this is highlighting that non-scientific knowledge is not bad. We just have to hold it. We have to understand it in a different sense, in what, in what uh, St. Thomas will talk about as belief, maybe even a very strong belief. And so then with that in mind, we're going to look at different ideas of belief and opinion uh, before we turn to modern science. So when St. Thomas talks about beliefs and opinions, these are actually two different types of things, right? He notes that beliefs and opinions give us bits of information that we think are true, but we also realize might be false. So science, right, again, is about things that cannot be, that are true and that cannot be otherwise. But belief and opinion are bits of information that we think are true, but maybe we're wrong about. And so the difference between belief and opinion for St. Thomas and others is that we believe things that we are pretty sure are true. Whereas opinions are things that we think are true, but we're, we don't quite, we're not quite sure, right? We, we have more of a hunch than anything else. Now, what is the reason why we have more certitude about beliefs? Well, sometimes it's because we have pretty good evidence that this, this thing is true. We just don't have solid evidence. Other times it might be because we've received this information from someone who is a trustworthy expert. So for instance, most of us, I would hope all of us in this room, hold that the earth is round. I mean, there are flat earthers out there, but they might find this stuff that we're talking about difficult here. So trigger warning in case you are. <laughs> anyway, so for the vast majority of us, this knowledge about the roundness of the earth is in fact, only in fact rises to the level of belief. Why? Well, because I think a lot of us have not done the observations and the calculations that actually prove the earth is round. We see pictures, but those can be photoshopped, right? So we don't necessarily, we don't have absolute certitude even from the pictures that we see. So remember, if we're going to have science, we need to use rigorous logic to get at the truth of things. So those of us who have not made the, observa who have not made the observations and done the calculations to show that the earth is in fact round or round-ish uh, means that, that we don't have uh, we don't have scientific knowledge about that. Those who have done that do have scientific knowledge, but the rest of us have only a really solid belief in it. And it's not bad, right? We can't prove everything individually. So we have no particular reason to doubt the roundness of the earth because there's plenty of evidence, even if we haven't gone through the solid proofs of showing the certitude of that evidence. 
You know, you get in the plane, you watch the, you watch the, you watch the ground go by, you know, and you see, and you see the flight patterns and you realize it's probably the case the Earth is a globe. All right, so with that in mind, then let us turn to contemporary science and the way that deduction is frequently done in contemporary science. So now there are a number of complicated reasons for the way that contemporary science developed in the way that it did during the period known as the scientific revolution. I will not be going into that topic because it's really a topic for a different presentation, but I will say this, that in the early modern period, because of certain problematic developments in philosophy, the physical sciences began to move in their own direction, following, uh, focusing less on speculative problems that are so beloved of us philosophers and looking more towards practical problems. So the philosopher Rene Descartes sums up the motivation for this trajectory in the physical sciences in the following way in his discourse on method. He says, and this is a quote on the back of your handout, uh, quote number two there. For these notions made me see that it is possible to arrive at knowledge that would be very useful in life and that in place of that speculative philosophy taught in the schools, it is possible to find a practical philosophy by means of which knowing the force and the actions of fire, water, air, the stars, the heavens, and all the other bodies that surround us, just as distinctly as we know the various skills of our craftsmen, we might be able in the same way to use them for all the purposes for which they are appropriate and thus render ourselves, as it were, masters and possessors of nature. Whenever I read that, I want to like close my fist dramatically. <laughs> so, exactly. So this is desirable not only for the invention of an infinity of devices that would enable one to enjoy trouble-free the fruits of the earth and the goods found there, but also principally for the maintenance of health, which unquestionable is the first good and the foundation of all the other goods of this life. For even the mind depends so greatly on the temperament and on the dispositions of the organs of the body that if it is possible to find some means to render men generally more wise and more adroit than they have been up until now, I believe that one should look for it in medicine. End quote. So Descartes expresses in this passage a desire for a practical science, one that will make our lives better. And he picks out medicine in particular as especially important. And as far as it goes, right, this is a noble goal. But we should note that it is a different goal than the traditional philosophical notion of what a science is, right? Again, science is about necessary things that cannot be otherwise. But practical goals, practical knowledge is by nature about things that can be otherwise, that change. And so because, because practical objectives obviously want to change things around the world, in the world around us, I should say. So again, the problem here is that, is that this goal of trying to tame and control nature became, over time, the only type of knowledge that people began to care about. And there was a movement to say that the type of knowledge that gives us practical control over reality is the only real knowledge that we have. And what is more, 
Over time, this pursuit of practical knowledge became more and more separated from the speculative reasonings of philosophers. And such was not always the case, right? In Aristotle, our speculative reasoning helps to give us a framework within which we can develop practical solutions to the real problems of everyday life. And as, as this, and, but as the scientific revolution developed, there was an ever-increasing disdain for speculative thought. And there are many problems with this particular prejudice against speculation, but a notable one to point out in this context is that it's actually impossible to develop a framework for solving practical problems without at least some philosophy of, and metaphysics, right? I'm reading um, Thomas Hertog's book, On the Origin of Time, and he's one of the, he worked very closely with Stephen Hawking's in the last 20 years of Hawking's, of Hawking's life. And, you know, one of the things he quotes Hawking's as saying is that philosophy is dead, but then he goes on to ask very poignant philosophical questions. And so that's, it's an interesting kind of, uh, kind of juxtaposition. So, but what happens, right, if you try to do, uh, create metaphysical, to create practical models without a medical, metaphysical framework, what you end up doing is taking in philosophical presuppositions without examining them properly. And so then you, then, then uh, a, lot, a lot of things, a lot of models are then developed on presuppositions uh, uh, that come from philosophy, but in fact have not been properly considered. And so practically this meant that a number of bad metaphysical propositions seeped into science and into its practices. Um, most clearly in the notion that a lot of science uses a notion of causation uh, or ca causality from um, David Hume rather than from an Aristotelian perspective of, of a cause being that from which some, something follows uh, with the dependence of being. But there are, are other more obvious problems I want to highlight. And in particular, the manner in which the scientific method uses hypothetical reasoning to come to conclusions. So here is a very simplistic, but hopefully acceptable description of the scientific method, right? So the method that is being used here is what we call a hypothetical deductive method. First, you identify a problem. Then you develop a theory about why that problem exists or in which the problem exists. And then in our society, this theory is quite often a highly mathematical theory, uh, especially in physics, but it also is in the case in a lot of the biological sciences as well. And then the development of a particular theory gives you a framework with, within which to understand and to solve problems in a particular context. So then to prove this theory, uh, I'm going to, Father William Wallace, who I gave you some chapters from his book, uh, The Modeling of Nature, to read, uh, to, to assist with this lecture. So if you haven't read them, I highly suggest it. And really, it's a wonderful book to buy. Um, so Father Wallace says, uh, says that you, when you have to prove this theory, what you have to do is to find a way to disengage, quote, he says, the physical content or the physical mathematical content content of the theoretical concept from the logical apparatus in which it is embedded, usually by some type of hypothetical reasoning. And if the concept cannot be so disengaged, it remains 
problematical, and that's a technical term. In this event, it may be thought of as a hypothetical concept, one that may or may not refer to an actually existing entity. And so what happens is when you get this hypothetical concept, it's not usually something that you can directly see, you can directly test, right? But you have a hypothesis. And the way that you test the hypothesis is you come up with an experiment, right? So this is the famous hypothesis experiment methodology at the heart of a lot of science. And so what Father Wallace then continues by saying, quote, in this method, the investigator formulates a hypothesis that is capable of empirical test and then designs an experimental procedure for verifying or falsifying consequences deducible from that hypothesis. After repeated instances of having confirmed or disconfirmed empirical consequences deduced from the hypothesis, the researcher is in a position to judge its validity. End quote. Now here's the problem. The hypothesis and experiment are always related to one another in a conditional manner. We might say that if this hypothesis is correct, then we will see these experimental results. And so that gives you the following argument, uh, argumentative structure that you see number five on the front of your handout. If X hypothesis is correct, then we will see Y experimental results. We see Y experimental results, therefore, X hypothesis is correct, or at least verified. Now what you may see is structurally, this, is, this type of argument is the same as affirming the consequent, that I, the kind of invalid hypothetical implication that I talked about earlier. And so that's a problem if we're looking for science in the traditional sense of understanding something uh, to be true, understanding the conclusion to follow necessarily when we have true premises. And so what this means is that experimental verification where the experiments are consistent with our hypothesis, tend to only give us belief, not science, because it is possible for the answers to be otherwise. So therefore, the physical sciences, at least when they use arguments of this structure, cannot give us the certitude of science in the classical sense. This is not to say that the experimental evidence is bad. In fact, you know, and we, we have, it's reasonable to presume that the more you have uh, verification, the more trustworthy the hypothesis is. But you can never get up to that level of scientific certitude using this particular method. Now, we might say, well, are there ways in which we can get certain uh, explanations from our, from our scientific investigations? And the answer there is yes, there are some ways we can do this. Um, some which we do use, and some which we could use, and some which we could use better. So the first is that is the way. The first is um, using the notion of falsification, right? So the way our scientific experiments are constructed, it's much easier to be certain about the hypotheses we falsify than about the hypotheses that we verify. Why? because oftentimes falsification is done in a manner that's similar to a modus tollens argument, right? We say, 
if X hypothesis is correct, and this is number six on your handout, if X hypothesis is correct, then we will see Y experimental results. We do not see Y experimental results, therefore X hypothesis is not correct. Right. So interestingly enough that based on logic, we can be absolutely certain uh, when, about when a hypothesis is false by using uh, Modus Tollens argumentation. But now, you know, there's only so much, it's only so, much, so, so helpful to have knowledge about things that are false. We do want to get knowledge about things that are true. So what are other ways in which we can be more certain about our sciences? Well, there is the method that is often associated with Sherlock Holmes. Right? The idea that you come up with a list of every possible solution to a problem, and then you go through and eliminate each one, each one by one. So then Sherlock Holmes famously says, when you have eliminated all which is impossible, then whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Right? Now, if you can come up with a correct list of possible solutions to a problem, then this method will work quite well. But the issue is that it's quite often impossible to come up with an absolute list of solutions, right? And so quite often what we do is we try to come up with a list of possible solutions, and that list contains contingent things. And insofar as they're contingent, it's relatively impossible to put together a complete list of those contingent things. And so if we're going to use this Sherlock Holmes method, we need to come up with a list of necessary things. And then we can go through the kind of process of knocking out all of the, all the impossibilities and get there. Um, it, you know, in, when you use a superposition um, in probability, probabilistic reasoning, it's trying to do something like this all at once although you can't see exactly, exactly what's going on, which is part of the reason why superpositions only give you, uh, in, in mathematical reasoning, probabilistic uh, understanding at the end. But that's for another time. A third possibility, right, is turning the conditional statement, the first statement into an argument, into something that we call a biconditional, if and only if. So we were to say if and only if, so, uh, so, if X, right, then Y, we'd say that if and only if, uh, or how, how would you formulate that? I'm blanking, I'm a little tired from last night. Uh, what's, yeah, if and only if X, then Y, that's right. If and only if X, then Y. So like if you can create a biconditional, and what we mean is that if you have one, then necessarily the other, and if you have the other, then necessarily the first, right? If you can get, a, if you can get the necessity going in both directions, then by discovering one, you can discover the other. And the way that you would do this is you'd have to come up with a model that you are absolutely certain about where the only possible explanation for the conclusion just is what you have in the antecedent. If you can develop that, then you can start using this notion, the, using verification as a way to come up with certain knowledge about things. But again, that's really hard to do. So, but these are the types of things that we have to do in our, in our kind of structure of our arguments to understand, to get certain knowledge about the things that we are reasoning. So all of this is to say is that there are some interesting logical problems with the way that we do deductive reasoning in science today. 
There are ways in which we can improve that, uh, that reasoning, but we also have to be honest about the level of certitude that certain types of reasoning are going, to get, are going to get us based upon the types of things that we are considering and reasoning about. And so what we, one of the ways in which we can help to be more certain about our conclusions is, I would say, and Father Wallace would say, and as a lot of our Thomas would say, would be to bring more explicit philosophical reasoning and metaphysics back into the scientific project. Maybe not at the experimental stage, but certainly at, this, at the theoretical stage and at the stage of developing proper models. Because you can use philosophical and metaphysical reasoning and, and reasoning from natural philosophy to help develop models that will give us more surety about the things that we are examining. And a good example of this, again, is Father William Wallace's book, The Modeling of Nature. But there are many others who are trying to do this sort of project, some of them who are in this room. And so part of what we would like to do as Aristotelian Thomists and others is to develop a relationship of trust and a common language with scientists where we can discuss the real problems that arise and maybe to develop new models and theories that are that are coherent with sound philosophical principles and sound philosophical reasoning so that our science can approach the classical ideal of science that Aristotle and his followers ha had. And so with that in mind, I think we can now see why it is that science has truly benefited the human race while at the same time being limited in its findings, at least limited in our certitude about what it finds. Science is good at coming up with practical solutions to discrete problems, but it is systematically incapable of coming up with certain knowledge on its own, at least in the way that it's quite frequently practiced today. To make it better, we need a better metaphysics applied to our modeling and our investigations. And what is more, we can, uh, we can connect science with sound metaphysics. Uh, when we can connect science with sound metaphysics, then we can also have a clearer path for how to unite scientific findings with faith and theology. Because, of course, theology also has a very strong link to, uh, to philosophy. All of our priests and all of our theologians should be going through a robust philosophical program before they go on to study theology. And so having a better link between philosophy and science will enable a better link between, philosophy, between science and theology. And so if done correctly, then science will be able to come up with answers to the, uh, to the problems around us that are not contrary to the faith, but actually cohere with it. Because we think and we believe and we understand that no truth can contradict any other truth. So that the truths of the faith should cohere with the truths of philosophy, which should cohere with the truths of science. We just have to find a way for them to all play nicely in the same sandbox. Thank you. Thank you, Father Hermes. We have some time for some questions. So. Well, thanks uh, for that talk. Uh, I'm a, a biologist, and so I'm just trying to think like your, your um, idea that uh, if and only if X and then Y, right? It doesn't seem that that's even possible to, to formulate from a biological, like, particularly more like translational medicine and so forth. But, like that certitude is just impossible. It, 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 I, I can't think. Do you have like an example scientifically how you can formulate that? Like, uh, is that even? I mean, I, I see logically yeah. how that would work, but I, in practice, I'm, 
So the way, so the way that, the, that, that biology is situated is, right, there are already, as I was mentioning to you before this lecture, already many different layers of dependence. So part of it would be to come up with um, uh, a, a way in which those, way in which we understand how biological life depends upon biochemical life, right, and that sort of thing, and then how the cellular level kind of interacts with um, the t level of tissues and things like that. And that's a very complicated process. Some of those things we can't be certain about. So for instance, like, you know, um, when it comes to information uh, and how it passes through cells, right, there are different types of pathways in which things can, uh, can will occur, right? When, you know, if you look at some of these biological models, there are like 12 pathways, right? You know, like, if it goes this way and if it goes that way, it's going to end up in the same place, right? So you put in the same input conditions and you get these output conditions. There are several ways in which it could have got, you could have gotten those output conditions and we've outlined those ways. Um, but we don't know exactly how, how, how we got, how the, which pathway, for instance, led to these conclusions. So the way that scientific demonstration would work here is by, we can, by using it to develop a certitude about those pathways, all right, that information may pass through a cell. Um, and if we find out that there are several pathways, then maybe we can never be certain about why a certain result occur, but we can find certitude about the structures if we understand appropriately the biochemical structures that are, that are at work. So that the way that scientific certitude would come into play is in the, uh, in, in the, in the philosophical sense, would be in developing an understanding of the being of cells or living things and Rather stuff like that. That's right. Rather than predicting outcomes. That's right. And like, you know, the notion of like being able to predict outcomes is very much coming out of this Cartesian desire, but it's also related to Hume, right? So like when Hume talks about causation, he thinks about cause and effect as the cause just is what comes beforehand and the effect is what comes afterwards and that we call it cause and effect when there is a constant conjunction between them. Now, there's, it's a little bit more complicated than that. But like, so there we see kind of an input-output and what we want to do is have, have predictions. And that's great, but we have to also recognize that there's only so much certitude we can actually have about that. And so one of the things that Aristotle cautions us is to only look for the level of certitude that our reasoning can give us. Because physics is not math, 
-hmm. And there is a strong, I mean, they, and every time that you see mathematicization, you know, there are areas in physics like thermodynamics and a little bit of classical mechanics, and they have been trying to do that with quantum mechanics. And the actions are just representation of results that just hold. So, and now, last, last remark is, when you see x and y follows, there is a correlation. But it is clear that correlation does not mean causation. When you have causation, because you have a theoretical frame to interpret the relation between those two variables. So I don't, you know, and again, and I resist the fact that you, you try to follow mathematical logic. I know, I know, logical, philosophical logic, mathematical logic are wonderful frameworks, but things do not work that way when you actually are doing research. Yep. So, so that's a good point, and that what I've given you here uh, for the hypothetical deductions is more more similar, right, to um, mathematical logic. But if 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 I if I had ventured down the syllogistic stuff, I'd be able to talk about how Aristotle's framework is not, it goes actually deeper than the mathematical stuff. Because when you look at, when you develop a syllogism, you're not just talking about um, correlation, right? That if you have true causation, you can find relationships between things where one depends upon another for being, um, but, that's going, but that's going to take a different way of, of of approaching a particular subject matter. So this is why, like, you know, if, if we are going to introduce a Thomistic kind of metaphysics back into this, we need to make sure that we pull back even from some of the more mathematical um, reasoning and go back to an understanding of what something is. And that will help us to develop models that scientists can use in their own manners, right? So like, you're right, there, there are some problems with the way that that reasoning is and with Hilbert, I mean, he even, what he denies the uh, principle of the excluded middle, which is a big problem for, for Thomas, for sure. But, um, but yeah, so there are other issues there. But the point is that there is a, a recognition that science can come to certitude, and we think that we can collaborate with scientists better than just using mathematics and using mathematical uh, logic. Officer? William Wallace wants to say that, or Father Wallace wants to say that, um, that there could be some of these if, if and only if things in natural sciences practices now, such as um, knowing that the Earth is a sphere, because the effects that we see, and he lists a couple of effects, yeah. are only, could only have come from a, a spherical Earth rather than, I guess, a planet. Um, so I was wondering whether you think that in modern science we can get to some certainties like this, or maybe some definitions, such as uh, water is this compound of two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom, or, or maybe definitions in biology of what a cat is, or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, so I do think we can, but that we have awful lot of work to do, right? So like one of the problems that, that Thomas and Aristotelians have is that uh, we focus too much on the very high metaphysical stuff, but we haven't kind of gone through and criticized Aristotle's problematic deductions sufficiently enough. 
and then gone back and say, okay, what are the actual discoveries in science that we can then incorporate back into that? And unfortunately, there have been several hundred years of, of back and forth that we need to sift through. So, um, and we don't have the armies of researchers that scientists have. We certainly do not have the money that a lot of scientists have. Uh, but that would be the sort of thing that we would need to do, is to kind of collaborate with scientists and to try to first distinguish all the different implications which there are lots, um, and then, and then uh, to develop these models. So um, it's a rather, I do think it's possible, but we are very far from getting certain about um, the things that we are most worried about. If that, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's at least my, my supposition. So, you, know, you mentioned Q, and I was wondering if you could elaborate on that, or maybe we're talking about later in the, in the symposium or, or, uh, about Hume's uh, ideas and how they're, they're uh, oh. oh, I mean, um, it's, 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 most, it's mostly his redefinition of causation, right? If causation just is correlation between something that comes before and something that comes afterwards in a constant conjunction, right? Um, then it, it changes the notion of cause. That, then it's, that's a very different notion of cause than what we have in Aristotle, right? So then what we're looking, what you look for there is really input-output conditions. And it turns out that the vast majority of things do not have that sort of um, constant conjunction. And so then we have to use probabilistic reasoning. And on top of that, right, even if there is constant conjunction, we now know that, well, maybe it always, it wasn't always that case, right? Like, you know, we know that certainly in statistics, right, I could take a coin and I could flip it. And generally over time, it's going to be 50% heads, 50% tails, right? But like, you know, I could flip it for, I mean, for a significant time period. It could be like heads for a long time, just straight up, right? And so like, you know, if I did that for a few minutes, I might only have like a run of like four heads up or, or not, right? But what if we were to do like, the entire history of the universe, like, you know, 13 point, what, 6 billion years? 13.8 billion years, thank you. Right, 13.8 billion years, right? Then, like, all of a sudden, it turns out, like, the and then you take into account, like, the thousands of years of written human history, right? The things that look like uh, statistical, look like regularities, constant conjunctions, might just be a statistical irregularity in that small section of time. It's probably not but it could be, right? So this is, a, so one of the things, one of the problems with human uh, notions of, of causation is it's only really this notion of correlation, right? So if you go back to a Thomistic and Aristotelian approach to causation, to causes, right? Causes really, effects really do depend for their existence on their cause. And that, you know, in Hume, it's like cause comes before in time, effect comes into existence afterwards in time. Whereas for like an efficient cause for Aristotle, my hand is the efficient cause of this water bottle being held up. It will not hold this position once I remove my hand. Therefore, it is efficiently holding this up, but it's not prior to it in time. They exist in this relationship at the same time. And so there's also an, a, an understanding of priority or and posteriority in causation that is not necessarily temporal. And so also bringing that into play is going to be important here too. What science would care about that? Well, 
I mean, it, if, when you're talking about that, when you're talking about the way that, um, so medicine will depend upon the way that certain organs uh, operate at any given time, right? Which then also depends upon how the different chemical levels. If we can talk about those dependence are not just like one thing before another, but there's also a direct dependence of the cell of the of the tissue on the cell structures and on the cell structures on their organelles and all these types of things and on the way that the chemicals uh, chemicals operate at the same time. So if you want to figure out a way in which the different levels of being um, uh, interact with with one another, it can't just be over time. It also has to be ontologically at the same moment. Well, so I, but I'm, so I guess my point is that while that is the case that a lot of scientists do that, you, if you don't care about being, or if you don't bring in, if you just presume the existence of being, then what you end up taking in are unexamined philosophical theories about what being is. And that, that if you make a mistake there, that might lead to a mistake in the creation of models. And so it's important to have a philosophical examination of the being of things so that we can develop appropriate models to help us to understand things better. But that's philosophy or metaphysics. We have, we have, if the model doesn't work, you do the experiment and it fails, you throw it out. You but you, you can't you develop a model, but you can't develop a model without some philosophy. Yes, it is there. So what, um, I, we're, we're uh, running a long time and, and, and uh, about time to, get to, to have our lunch break. So uh, we've got time over lunch to debate this more further, more, more fully. Uh, but let's take a moment to thank uh, Father Ambrose for the Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.